Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Takeda, Better Health, Brighter Future. Hi, I'm your host, Susan Booning, and I'm here today with Dr. Carrie Heller to talk about how to help your child overcome executive function challenges. Hi, Dr. Heller. What are executive function impairments and how do they relate to ADHD? Sure, absolutely. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. I'm happy to be here today and you know, talk about all this. It's interesting because people talk so much about the term executive functioning or executive function impairments, but a lot of times people don't actually take the time to stop and define the term. And it can be confusing because I think sometimes there can be slightly different definitions, but for our purposes, executive functioning in general are a set of mental processes, or another way of thinking about it is an umbrella a subset of skill sets. So basically underlying idea of executive functioning are things like working memory, uh, prioritizing, planning, task initiation, I, I get kind of getting yourself started. So basically you have all these different skill sets and attention too that sort of work together to help someone to be able to complete a task or participate you know, properly in an event. But basically without these skills, you're not gonna get anything done or probably function on a day-to-day basis very well. And in terms of this question of ADHD, I mean, this, this is you know, often one that people think about, you know, contrary to you know, the way the criteria is set up, I mean, like I view it as by default, if someone has ADHD, if you look at the criteria, the majority of the criteria relates to executive function weaknesses. You know, think about the idea of self-regulation of attention. That, so essentially, if someone has ADHD, they pretty much have executive function impairments. However, someone can definitely have executive function impairments without having ADHD. So for example, anxiety, depression, OCD, you know, lots of other things can mimic or, or can cause executive function impairments, but really are not, are not ADHD. So the bottom line is, if you have ADHD, my opinion is that you by default have executive function weaknesses or deficits, but you can definitely have EF weaknesses without having ADHD. So what are some standard intervention strategies for attention and for executive functioning deficits? Sure. So, I mean, I would say probably one of the biggest like overarching general principles is the idea of structure. What's interesting is some people that have a lot of issues with attention and executive functioning, in theory, like thrive on structure, but really dislike it. So I think really structure is really crucial, but I think you have to have like the, the optimal amount of it because too much can be very hard because if people don't feel like they have any flexibility and they feel like if they start doing something that doesn't work properly with the structure, then they're sort of out of luck and why follow a plan? So you have like the general idea of structure and then things like a calendar, task list, some sort of planner, automated reminder systems, you know, essentially having very simple ways for someone to keep track of, you know, tasks in terms of what they need to complete, uh, reminders to be places at a certain time, essentially like having the day planned out for you it can be kind of some good strategies, both for kids and adults with um, attention issues and executive function weaknesses. Because if you have no idea what you need to be doing in the first place, it's really hard to, to focus your attention on something particular if you're not really even sure where, where you're supposed to be doing in the first place. And using accommodations or interventions to help a child cope with their emotions and applying skills to improve working memory go hand in hand? Um, in a lot of ways, they can, but you know, I think they're obviously each person is different. So I think it depends what the accommodations are, and obviously what the 
person's particular presenting issues, even with ADHD or executive functioning issues are. Um, you know, when you think, if you think about accommodations in terms of school accommodations, you know, whatever's written in, in a formal plan, you know, may be really helpful, but it also depends how it's actually executed. Because, you know, certainly emotions are something that people don't think about a lot, but certainly can be a huge issue, both with executive function deficits in general and with ADHD, because when you think about this idea of self-regulation, if someone has a hard time managing their emotions, they may get overwhelmed very easily. They may be you know, overly sensitive. And so little things really bother them. And then the emotions kind of can go from zero to 60, even for something that may seem very minor. So the idea here is that by you know, creating various strategies, whether it's you know, a cognitive behavioral tool to kind of you know, count to 10 to extent you can before reacting, to sort of you know, do something like, a, like a, take a couple deep breaths in and out. You know, there's lots of different strategies that people can use to help regulate their emotions better. The other piece of that is you think about memory. So in, in like an optimal, optimal functioning, someone you know, may have differences in, let's say, how good they are remembering things. But you know, if you take that and on top of that, add someone that's having a hard time at the moment managing their emotions, difficult emotions are probably, in most cases, going to impact the accuracy of someone's memory. Because certainly, um, issues with emotion regulation may lead to not remembering stuff as well to begin with. It may also lead to, la to lapses in attention more so. And you know, put those together, clear, you know, it can really impact a lot in terms of memory, memory abilities. I mean, same thing with other things. You know, think about sleep. Almost anything that can negatively impact someone away from their optimal level of functioning is going to impact attention and memory, as well as you know, lots of other things as well, processing speed and other things too. What strategies can parents learn to help a child be more motivated? <laughs> so a good question, one I definitely get asked a lot. I think it's hard because I think from an outside perspective, a lot of parents and caregivers often think, you know, this is my child's required to do this for school, or I want them to do this. They should be motivated naturally to do it. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Like I view motivation as internal and external. So internal motivation is things that people inherently want, want to do or see the value in. So for example, like in theory, people would be good if they're internally motivated to, let's say, work hard, you know, put forth their full effort, do their best to do well in school. For some, for some kids or adults even, that works really well. For other things, especially when it's not something someone really has an interest in, it can be harder. So in terms of how to help foster internal motivation, trying to find things that your child like, naturally seems motivated to. So whether it's building with Legos or um, running or something with sports, figure out like, you know, by finding that thing that, they, that really motivates them to begin with, you can then look at like, what, what's involved in that activity that they really like. And could you find like aspects of those skill sets involved in other things that maybe are less enjoyable and use that to help apply this, to help them develop this internal motivation? Or for example, like one thing, let's say with maybe middle school and high school students could be if let's say the child feel, or teen feels like, oh, this class, I, you know, I don't need to know this material. I mean, maybe it's true. Maybe in theory, they really don't need to know, I don't know, something about math if, if they really don't have a huge interest in going to a field that requires that a lot. But the skills, the skills involved can often be really helpful, even if the material itself is not going to be as useful potential. And again, you also really never know for sure until you get older. But the idea here is even if they have that perception, oh, this isn't going to be helpful to me, this the skills probably will be. And so helping them to focus on, I may not necessarily get much out of this material, or maybe I don't like the teacher, but by learning these skills, it's going to help me in a lot of different ways, you know, now and, and in general down the line. In terms of external motivation, and this one in some ways is even trickier because on the one hand, you can probably create different strategies and systems to help your child to be externally motivated. So whether it's giving them a reward for doing something 
um, you know, or, you know, it's the idea that when the, when the natural thing that occurs from doing something is not inherently rewarding enough, that's when creating, let's say, a reward system of, you know, they earn X number of points for, let's say, handing their homework each day, and then maybe they get a prize of some kind. The issue here is that you know, it walks a fine line, because on the one hand, you can set this up, but you have to be careful that it doesn't turn into your child wanting or expecting to earn something to do things they should be doing anyway. Um, I mean, I just remember there's a you know an old psych study that looked at um, piano playing, and it it looked at how when you know a child was you know given an external reward for doing something they enjoyed anyway, they actually became less interested in the activity. Yeah, you know, especially when the reward was taken away. So the idea here is that you, you want to figure out how to basically think about it as like a short-term fix to help develop a, a routine or habit. So if let's say a child has a hard time turning their homework regularly, that maybe if the intro motivation is not enough, you create an extra motivation by creating a prize system. Or maybe let's say for, I don't know, every, every day that they turn in all their homework, they get, I don't know, two points. And then if they do it consistently for an entire week, maybe they get an extra five points on top of that and they can trade it in for something. But the idea is like once they consistently can do it without, you know, with the reward, then maybe you either pull away the reward or maybe you then, you know, shift the reward to something else that needs to be addressed. Because then this way, if you do, if you keep it in place too long, once they've mastered what they need to, it's going to make it a lot harder to, for them to sort of continue to be motivated to do it down the line. But basically by putting in just long enough until it becomes a routine, then they're going to hopefully, the idea is over time, develop that internal motivation to sustain that, that skill set that they've developed better. Let's talk a little bit about strategies for emotional difficulties. What strategies could help a child to be more self-aware? and able to work through their thoughts and feelings. I mean, so this is interesting because this is one that it's definitely, these are crucial skills. The hard part is when someone's really riled up, it's hard for them to remember to use strategies in the first place. Um, and like, I think there's, I view this as sort of two prongs. So you have on the one hand, you have in the moment strategies, which I'll mention in a minute, like specific ones of how to kind of, you know, calm yourself down and handle situations in the moment. But on the other hand, the other big part of it is doing stuff on a regular basis to kind of prevent this, prevent things from happening in the first place. And so you have kind of by being proactive with the strategies, not in the moment, paired with ones in the moment, the two together can often work well. So in terms of specific strategies, I mean, in the moment, like let's say something's occurring at home, it's probably easier for a parent to, you know, draw their child's attention to, you know, did you notice what just happened to look at kind of what was the trigger? So identifying the trigger in terms of, you know, what happened, what led them getting upset, and then looking at, yeah, you know, how could they handle it differently? I mean, sometimes you do need to wait till someone's calm after this fact to be able to process it with them. But basically, by reviewing situations with with kids, you know, as soon as you can after they occur, and maybe it's you know writing down using a chart of some kind. So maybe you identify the trigger. You know, so what was occurring before? Let's say they reacted really strongly. What were they thinking at the time to accept they can remember it? How did they handle it? And then you know, was that an appropriate way of doing it, or what could they have done differently? So by essentially processing situations you know, soon enough after it happened, it can help kids to recognize, you know, down the line to sort of get to point first, maybe where when a situation sim a similar starts, they, you know, maybe they react a little bit, but then they can start to stop themselves. And then you get to a point ideally where they don't even react in the first place. So I think, you know, basically processing situations after they occur when you can, can work really well as sort of a proactive strategy towards, you know, preventing these issues from happening again. Other things sort of in the moment might be, you know, basically the idea of having kind of a cool down period. So instead of, I mean, probably the most standard stereotypical, you know, consequence is a timeout, you know, especially for younger kids. But the question then becomes, 
the, in theory, like you want to give kids a break from what's going on, to help them to calm down, but you want to focus on the calming down piece, not on the consequence. Cause I'm sure any of you listening that have kids that have tried to, you know, your kid's not doing what they're supposed to. And you start saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to, you know, you're going to have this taken away. Most kids, if they're riled up enough, they're not going to care in that moment. They're going to be so upset about whatever's going on that they're not going to care what consequence you give them. But the idea is you can focus first on the calming down. So that's where, you know, maybe you, you know, give them like you could set up a corner where, you know, instead of like a stereotypical timeout, you have like a place where they can go, but you know, they have like certain things, like maybe they have an exercise bike to sort of get some energy out. Maybe they can have, you know, coloring or drawing, but the idea is, you know, set this up ahead of time and have it ready to go. So literally they know they can go to that corner when they need to cool off. And so get them to cool off first and process those emotions. And then if you have to then talk about a consequence, but focus on the kind of the regulation piece first, not the consequence. Um, you know, so those are, you know, a couple of things that could be really helpful sort of in the moment. Um, other things, you know, occur counting, you know, counting backwards from 10 or taking a few deep breaths in and out. You know, if kids need to, they can imagine themselves, you know, blowing out candles or imagine themselves, you know, watching clouds go by. Um, if they're calm enough and it makes sense to you, you could also, there's lots of apps you can use like Calm or Headspace. Um, and they have a, both of them have sections for kids. Headspace has some good visual ones where it has ones of clouds. So you can take a few deep breaths in and out and like watch the clouds. Clouds, you know, for really little kids, there's a one, I think it's a, it's a breathe something thing. It's a, um, it's basically Sesame Street. It has a Sesame Street characters and there's like a cookie monster and you can, you know, your child can kind of follow along and, you know, breathe in and out with cookie monster and you can rub its belly. And, you know, there's some other fun stuff for real little kids that, you know, as long as they're, they're calm enough to not throw the device, you know, or you can sort of hold with them can work really well to help calming down. Cause that's the bottom line. You want to work on calming down first. The consequence really should be secondary and be used more as a preventative thing in the future, not as a, you know, the primary motivate thing to address when, when emotions are at play. Um, and then the other key thing is, again, you really want to look at what could be done differently next time, because there may be times where it's not all the child. It easily could be, well, obviously, the child still needs to learn to regulate things themselves. If, let's say, the parent yelled or reacted in a way that maybe was most appropriate, that can be something to maybe the, for the child and the parent to look, look at together to talk about, you know, maybe, you know, I know you didn't handle this way, but, you know, maybe I didn't either. And so what can we do together to make sure that this that this goes better? So, for example, if maybe the trigger in this case was... I don't know, the parent was in the middle of doing something for work and the child interrupted and then the parent got angry and then the child got angry. Then looking at, you know, maybe the parent could say to them, you know, I need five minutes to get this done. Please, you know, I will come get you in five minutes when I'm ready and I'm happy to help you. Because that's where it's also a team approach. And same thing, I mean, with teachers, like in theory, it would be great to be able to do that. And sometimes some teachers are very receptive to talking about that. Other times teachers are not really going to take ownership when they've had some role in their in the child sort of reacting very strongly. But it's, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not one size fits all. That's where you really want to look at a couple of different sort of approaches. You know, like I mentioned, like the timeout corner, the, the log of, you know, of triggers and before and after um, the, the breathing, the you know, meditation or other things, you know, along the lines of meditation, there's a thing called guide visual imagery where you can basically, you know, they have pre-made scripts. You can make your own um, innerhealthstudio.com is a website that, that has some ones you can basically download. They have pre-made ones you can listen to as well as scripts. So you can basically take it and then, you know, adjust it and you know, write it however you want. So the idea here with guided visual imagery is that rather than focusing on yourself directly, you imagine you listen to what's being said. So maybe it's, you know, imagine yourself walking through a forest, you know, listen to the sounds of the birds chirping and the leaves, you know, crunching under your feet. Yeah, you, know, you know, as you kind of walk past and then, you know, there's another one where, you know, maybe you walk to a clearing and there's a beach and you can listen to the sounds of the waves and, you know, the, the birds flying overhead. And so the idea is by creating this imagery, it kind of takes your mind off of whatever's going on 
But the, the crucial part is throughout it, they're often having you kind of breathe in and out. So you're kind of still getting the same idea of breathing. And the reason behind that is that, you know, when people are upset with, you know, issues of motion regulation, they're often, you know, their heart rate be racing, they're maybe breathing heavily. So the idea is by creating their homeostasis, getting them back to kind of their calm state, that can help them to, to people to feel a lot better. I mean, adults too. And so that's why, you know, whether it's a meditation program or gradual imagery, there's often that big focus on the breathing. I mean, other like very simple like breathing techniques you can use are you can do, um, you can get your child to lie down, you know, put a very like, have them put a like pillow on, the, on their chest. And the idea is to breathe in and out slowly enough that the pillow doesn't move. Or you can also use, you know, one nostril breathing where basically you put your finger over one nostril and breathe in and out really slowly for about 10 to 15 seconds. The idea is, it's, it may sound really strange, but basically because it constricts your breathing just a little bit, it allows you to be able to take a few, it allows you to sort of get back to homeostasis state faster. I mean, of course, you always want to make sure, you know, they're try, it's safe for your child to do that. And the idea is really that you don't want to, you know, you want to hold a little bit. You don't want to like block your actual breathing in any way. It's really just the idea that by, or you can do it even with a straw too breathe in and out slowly through a straw. The idea is just by, it just forces you to slow down your breathing a little bit more if, if you need that extra kind of physical piece to, to help guide you on that. But again, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that you can really do to sort of help with the, the, the self-regulation of emotions, but because, you know, everyone's different, you really want to also, you know, incorporate your child's into this discussion. So maybe, you know, when there's a situation where things didn't go very well, once they're calm, talk to them about not just what could we have done differently, but let's come up with some strategies that we can do in, you know, when this happens again, and then even write them out. So this way, maybe you have a chart somewhere in, you know, in the kitchen or somewhere easily accessible where your child can see, oh, I'm getting upset. This, I can, you know, count backwards from 10, or I can, you know, access the app and, and do some deep breathing. So the idea is by also including your child in the discussion, it helps them to take ownership of this and not feel like, oh, here are the strategies my parents are making me do. Because it's often hard enough, even for adults, you know, when they're, when they're upset about something to use strategies that they know they can use. And sometimes you may get more pushback from a kid just because they're really upset, even when you're offering things that under normal circumstances they might be really happy or willing to do. So by kind of helping them to learn to do it themselves and have access to this stuff, it will help them to, over time, be able to use this more themselves when they really need to. And that's, that's really an important question is how parents can help with fostering self-awareness in their child so that you know, they can try a lot of these strategies and they're, they're great and they're very effective. But at some point, the child's self-awareness, hopefully, will help them to utilize these interventions or strategies before they fly really off the handle. Can you talk more about that and what parents can do to help foster that kind of self-awareness? Sure. I mean, I think what's hard is for a lot, even for adults, too, sometimes it's really hard to see what do you look like on the outside when you're doing this or what's going on? So, I mean, other things you can do, again, I would not do this necessarily without your child's permission. And I would probably not advise doing it like in the moment when they're really upset. But if some, but if you can sometimes work on the self-awareness for situations that really are not as emotionally charged, like for example, if, I don't know, they're doing some sort of like actually like a family game and I don't know, you set it up or maybe you, you know, video record, you know, everyone playing for a couple of minutes and then you play it back to the child that they're probably, the child's probably going to see things from that in the video that they just never noticed themselves. And what they were doing. And even it may not be anything emotionally charged, but the idea is by having opportunities to kind of see outside of yourself and see what happened. Like, even if maybe the child, I don't know, is starting to get a little frustrated, you know, they in the moment may not have perceived at all that they were getting frustrated with the game, but, you know, looking at the video, they may say, oh, wait, now I do actually see how that could be perceived as my getting kind of upset about this. 
or even like self-awareness with other stuff. Like for example, a child may have absolutely no idea that they're fidgeting so much. And, you know, seeing that on video may get their attention a different way to say, oh, I realize that is actually occurring a lot. What different processes can help my child to work through solving problems? <laughs> I mean, I think it dep depends on the child. I think for some kids, they need like a very structured approach to like, here's what's going on. Like almost like if you, like for such, especially for kids that have a real hard time, you know, and this may be for parents too, like for example, setting it up and almost like a corporate where basically you have like the structured system of, you know, the child gets, you know, X number of minutes to kind of state their case, explain what happened from their perspective, the parent gets a turn and then the child gets a rebuttal. I, I mean, sometimes you don't have to structure quite that much, but for some kids where they feel like it's, you know, it's really hard to kind of stop talking or let the other talk, like having that preset structure can kind of be really, can be really helpful oftentimes. So, you know, or it's whether, I mean, certainly I'm sure you've probably seen some movies at this point or TV shows of, you know, you hand someone a sick and only person with a sick can talk in the moment. So, you know, things like that. Like the idea though, in general, is it's good for a lot of stuff to have it written down, to have a plan of action before issues occur. Because if you're, if you're only trying to create a, a plan to how to approach stuff once an issue's already occurred, it can often be harder to. So by having these, these plans in place ahead of time makes it a lot easier to diffuse situations more easily and hopefully prevent things from happening again. Is there anything else you'd like to share with parents about helping their child overcome executive functioning challenges? Sure. I mean, one of the other big things with it, I, I would say, is that, I mean, besides, I've said several times already, one size does not fit all. You know, what works for you as a parent may be drastically different than what works for your child. And so recognizing their individual differences in how people approach things is really crucial. So better understanding like what's going on? Like if it's keeping track of assignments, you know, if you're, if for you, you would think, oh, I'll just write down a pair of planner and that doesn't work for your child. You may want to look at not just that it doesn't work, but why? So is it that they can't get it out quickly enough to write it? Is there, hand, are there issues with handwriting? So it makes it really hard to write it down and then figuring out from there, what could work better? So, cause there's a difference between if it's more of a mindset of, oh, everything's in a school portal. I don't need to write it down versus I just can't remember to do it. Because the more information you have on like what's going through their mind when they're having trouble with something and what works or what doesn't work about strategies that have been suggested, you know, will help guide you a lot more in terms of, and taking a collaborative approach will hopefully help a lot more with being able to you know, help your child to find tools that work for them. And also the other thing too, is you can also, while, you know, stuff that works for you as a parent may not necessarily work, always work for your child. You know, if you can weave kind of, dem you know, demonstrating sort of good, you know, executive function skills, you know, into kind of your daily life with your child. So for example, if they say, you know, can you remind me of this? Then you may say, you know, I mean, I could, but is there a way you could think of reminding yourself of it? Or maybe, you know, just by watching you, let's say, I don't know, use an Amazon um, Echo. And basically, if you, if you use that and actually set reminders, sometimes your kids may see that and may start using that themselves. Or if, you know, they have, let's say, access to, you know, an iPad somewhat regularly, you know, maybe, you know, if you use the Reminders app, maybe, you, you know, share, share a list with them and then, you know, gets them in the habit of using it or same thing with a calendar. Because a lot of times, you know, kids do watch, especially younger kids. And by just seeing what you're doing, even if you're not directly, you know, saying you should do this, some kids will just pick up on just seeing you do it and may recognize, oh, you know, this actually be helpful. Let me try doing this. The, you know, the final thought too is really just about flexibility. So one of the biggest things I see is that when someone tries to structure make a plan, they feel like, oh, it's not going to work perfectly. So I, no matter what I do, my plan is not going to work, you know, after the first thing, if that. And so why bother? Whereas while structure is really crucial, you have to have flexibility in a plan. I mean, no matter how good you are playing, nothing's going to work perfectly. There are going to be things that you have no control over that come up. Things may take longer than you think. So it's important to have a, have a plan you structure, but also to allow room for flexibility in that as well. 
Thank you so much for all these helpful suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast was sponsored by Takeda. Better health, brighter future. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 podcast.